Welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast, a show about planning for, responding to, and recovering from emergencies. I'm Stuart Walker, and on today's show, I'm talking with Wayne Rigg, who is currently on secondment to Emergency Management Victoria. Wayne is an air attack supervisor, aircraft manager, and currently works in the area of aviation capability and innovation. In this episode, we discuss Emergency Management Victoria's trial of nighttime aerial firebombing using night vision technology. Wayne Rigg, welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Wayne, where did your firefighting career begin? I started as a volunteer in Ilden up in the northeast at Lake Ilden and uh, spent a couple of years there. And uh, while I was doing that, I actually was overseas, came back, and I did a summer as a project firefighter with Delp or whatever it was called back then. Yes, changed names, so yes. I think it, it was DRNE or something like that those yep. days. And um, that piqued my interest, and then um, I applied for and, and became a career firefighter and started in 95 at, at Fisville. So, so your role now, can you explain what your role is at the moment with uh, Emergency Management Victoria? So um, I'm on Secomet. I've been on Secomet for the last year and that's now been extended for another two years. Uh, and it's in a specialist aviation space. So um, for the last year, my role has been in an innovation and capability role. Um, and that's building on my background from CFA in the aviation officer job that I've been doing previous to that for six or so years. So the job was to, um, particularly in the last year, is gain approval uh, for something that's never been done in Australia before, and that was for nighttime firebombing. So uh, we gained that approval, and my job now for the next two years is to actually make that operational and provide that to our firefighters on the ground and protect our communities. And there must have been a fair bit of work leading up to the nighttime firebombing trial. Part of this, I think, was a study tour to the US. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, interconnected in a way in that I applied for the Emergency Services Foundation Scholarship. And uh, if anyone's not aware of that, they should look at that. They run a great conference every year. It's coming up in July. And um, you can apply from any of the agencies, staff or volunteers. And and you should look at that because you put a proposal together. And my proposal was based um, on all communities, all emergencies aircraft. So moving from our aircraft at the moment is uh, available generally for the summer, call it, and it's for firefighting, bushfire fighting. Um, my study tour was around what do people do in the world, uh, predominantly in the US, around having aircraft available to them in the all-hazard space 24-7. And part of that included night ops as well. So uh, who is flying at night? How are they flying? What are they flying to do? So obviously, um, when you go to LA County, they run Blackhawks and they run 412 aircraft, and they're running 24-7, and it's huge population, huge risk. Um, but they, they're advanced life support aircraft, so they've got paramedics on board. Um, they do hoisting, winching, um, rescues. They do water rescue. Uh, of course, they do firebombing as well, and they do this at night. And if you look across the world about who does night firebombing and who does it fair income? LA County is the place to go. So there are other places that do it. So I went and visited San Diego, um, Sacramento. We talked to the US Forest Service, a whole range of people. But LA County are the ones that everyone points to. They've been doing it for a long time. They've matured their capability. So I was fortunate to make some connections there. And everything in the emergency management world, so it's a fraternity across the world. Once you put something in place for a, a proposal, you go, this is what I think I want to do. You get that approved. And then, of course, that leads you somewhere. So through connections and um, people that you know and people you don't know, I was able to then connect with LA County and fortunately spend some time with them on shift. So if you think about our days on a fire truck where you'd go on night shift and you'd start at six o'clock and um, turn out or whatever else, um, well, you do the same thing. So um, Barton Halliport uh, in LA, 
all the aircraft come into there, they do a change of shift, and then they fly out to these bases. So, um, and, uh, you know, I'll get it wrong, but there's basically north, east and west plus the Barton, and that, that's coverage for them across their um, their risk area. So, um, yeah, I spent some time with them on, on a Blackhawk flying day missions um, with uh, emergency medical stuff, um, some hoist training, winch training, and then also doing some night ops and ex- understanding the MVG from their point of view because they do understand it. Their pilots are typically former- Sorry, NVG? Night vision goggles. Right, yes, sorry. So that's the night stuff. Yeah, we're good at acronyms, <laughs> yes, aren't we? Yes, we are. And uh, the, their pilots are typically um, coming out of a, a background that has experience in night vision goggles, so whether that's military, law enforcement, um, HEMS, so the, uh, medical stuff. So uh, that was a really good insight to understand what they do um, and build that on a foundation about how we went about what we did because linked with that, CASA had also spent some time with LA County mm-hmm. to understand their capability. And- um, you can go to Europe and have a look what they do there, but they don't typically have the bushfires we do um, and all that North America does. So that's where we went. I built some very strong relationships there um, and they taught us a lot. They shared their information. They continue to share their information and that helped inform what we want to do going forward as well. Um, so that that study tour was not only about night ops, but looking at, okay, um, think about this for a minute. Uh, in the state of Victoria, where are our technical rescue um, hazmat, CBR, high-angle, confined space, technical rope rescue. Where are those caches and people? And if we need to move them quickly to somewhere, how do we do it? And at the moment, we do it with a vehicle. Mm. So if you needed to go from Ballarat City to coverage into Mildura, that's a four-and-a-half-hour drive. And code one, it might be four hours. Uh, and if that's for a recovery of a person, it probably doesn't matter. But if it's for a patient that's live, um, then how do you get someone there quickly? And um, go to Melbourne. What if it got gridlocked? So this is mm. a lot of what ifs. But what if there was a minor earthquake and the roads were gridlocked and we needed to move some gear from one point to another and we can't do it by road? How do we do it? Mm-hmm. So I was looking at how the US model works and how they do that. So I spent a lot of time, you know, I was flying with um, Sacramento, with San Diego, with LA County. We went to San Bernardino, looked to the sheriff's models. There were so many people that were so willing. I spent time with uh, with the Highway Patrol, uh, California Highway Patrol, and how they do it. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a really good way to inform. That was what the study was about, about what we do going forward. And it's something that I'll work on separately to the night ops program. Yeah. But something I think we need. Um, you know, I, a lot of people I talk to, they nod their head and go, yeah, okay. So we want to move some gear. Because you think about how much money we invest in people, mm. in equipment, um, the coverage we need for that across the state. And if you look at aircraft, they're not the silver bullet. They've got limitations like anything. But if you've got another tool available to you uh, that can move gear, r- remote road accident rescue. What if, and I don't know anything about RAR, but mm. you talk to some people, what if you've got a couple of battery-operated things of case of equipment in a Pelican case, you can slide in the back of a helicopter, put a couple of RAR operators in to go and pop a door or you know cut a brake pedal or whatever, that can make the difference of uh, that person's um, lifespan if they're going to make it or not. So this is some of the things they're actually doing overseas now, is they're, they're putting this gear, rescue gear typically, in the back of these helicopters, flying the operators out to... To do extractions. So a range of things. Mm. So they do it by the road. They've still got that yep. capability. And, um, of course, their coverage when you look at a place like California, they've got counties and that's funded by a county mm. versus the state. There's a whole different funding model. But yep. that is some of the things they're doing. Mm. Um, so part of that study tool was looking at those. I've put that report together. What does that look like going forward? It's sort of parked at the moment because the priority is the night ops. Mm-hmm. But 
that's something that I think as our risk changes um, and our expectations from community change about how we address that risk, um, you know, that's what we do. I, I look forward to talking to the new MFB chief and saying, what did you do from over there? Yep. Um, what, what do they do in the UK? Uh, on a different tour I did around large air tankers, I was fortunate to spend some time with Security Savelle in, in, in France. So um, I went into Paris Heliport and spent a day on an EC-145 helicopter in there, um, modelled to understand what they do. This was, um, you know, it was just one of those things that I'd met someone that knew someone and then they made it work. So these guys, you know, I'm flying around. If you want to talk about stories, so I'm flying around Paris in an EC-145 looking out going, and there's the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, yep, that is. There's the Arc de Triomphe. Oh, my goodness. You know, why aren't there any other helicopters here? Yeah. The airspace is shut down because of the terrorist threat. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I envisaged, oh, this is like Las Vegas <laughs> or the Grand Canyon. There's going to be helicopters everywhere. Yeah. So here I am. But but in And the, you were in, working at the time. Oh, yes. Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah, officially, yeah. Officially, <laughs> correct, right. Correct. Uh, and then we went out into the French countryside over the chateaus and mm. had a look around, but then did some hoist training with some ground crews and understood how they did that. But where I'm heading with this is their model is they have these helicopters which are stripped out of anything. So they're not kitted up as advanced life support. All they've got on them is a crewy, a pilot, uh, and then a winch. And what they do is they'll actually land out at a remote site where there's an accident and they'll put on board the the doctor, the nurse, and mm. the advanced life support equipment. They'll fly that person to a higher level of care and then they'll return that stuff back out there versus some of the US models whereby the aircraft's actually fitted out to no end. It's got everything in it that you need to do. So looking at what people do really helps inform what we do because I'm inherently lazy, mate. I I don't (laughs) want to reinvent the wheel. If someone's done something we can learn from and build on, um, then why not do it? So, yeah, that's that's how those study tours came about. And if anyone gets the opportunity in any way, shape or form, the Emergency Services Foundation, the Churchill one, which I haven't done yet, but I'd like to, um, then they should look at that because, um, you know, it's a global world, it's a, a global thing, firefighting. We don't have the monopoly on it. No one does. And we should be learning from each other. And we are well connected now, but there's nothing better than sitting down at a kitchen table at a helipad mm. or a heliport and saying, g'day guys, what do you do? Yeah. And people take pride in showing you what they do, and they should, mm. um, because once they figure out your bona fides and your fair income, they go, oh, we'll show this bloke, and any question he asks will answer, rather than shut it out. Mm. Um, and I found that invaluable. So the connections I've got now in North America, the connections I've got in Canada, being deployed there for three years on firefighting, mm. um, and into uh, not so much into Europe, but I'm starting to build those, across the ditch in New Zealand. It's helping inform where I'm heading in my succumbent for the next two years and how we operationalise night vision. You know, it's all about relationships and it really is in everything we do in emergency management. So nighttime firebombing is now your major project you work on. So what are some of the challenges associated with nighttime firebombing? Yeah, um, it's it's very challenging. So from a cultural point of view and an opinion um, point of view, um, it's a it's a very polarising. So if you look at Night firebombing. It's not new. Nothing new about it. Um, you know, the US have been doing it. Um, the Europeans have been doing it. The Kiwis have been doing it for a long time uh, in a different regulatory environment. But um, the first challenge for us was to get the approvals to be able to do it. So um, no one in Australia had the tick in the box to say you could actually go and do nighttime firebombing. What we do have in place 
is currently we can do night air observing. So we can fly out over a fire on goggles and go, that's where the fire is, map it, it's at this place, here's the losses. So that's a current capability. In addition to that, AI, so aerial incendiary, which is the glycol-injected ping-pong balls. Mm -hmm. Um, So for burning out operations, we can do that at night, approved. And um, typically that's across jurisdictions. If you look at police and medical and military, they use goggles in whatever um, their job is. Mm-hmm. But no one's dropped water on fire in Australia. It's it just we, it was the next progression. We just someone needed to do it. So sponsored by Emergency Management Victoria, championed by the commissioner, uh, with support of the agencies uh, with NAFSI, which is the National Aerial Firefighting Centre, which is part of AFAC. Um, we set about with CASA partnering with companies to get approvals. Uh, and um, dealing with regulators who are responsible for everyone's safety. They are ultra-cautious, and that's fine. That's their job. I'm glad that that's their job. So we worked through that. I partnered with uh, a gentleman uh, named John Ginnivan. John and I were the, uh, the project lead and operational lead on that, and we worked through with with. Um, Kestrel with Colson with Casa to get the approvals. So that involved a whole range of things, of which no doubt you'll ask me about in a minute, I'll tell you about, <laughs> um, to uh, get that approval. Now, the challenges within that are, hasn't been done before in Australia. Everywhere else in the world, people land their helicopter to fill it. So you think about what we do in daytime, and everyone can mm-hmm. relate to this now because everyone's used to seeing a helicopter or an aeroplane turn up. But in helicopter sense, fire going over here, there's a dam, helicopter goes, hovers over the dam, drops the snorkel in, fills up, drops water on the fire, comes back, does it again. So turnaround times are critical for us because it goes to effectiveness. Everywhere else in the world where they night firebomb, including LA County, they go and land mm-hmm. at a heli spot, plug the hose in, fill that tank up, then take off. Now, you think about from our point of view, if you've got a grass fire somewhere that's impacting a rural community of which the water source is a long way away, uh, what does that mean for effectiveness? What does that mean? If we have to go and land at a, an approved lit heli site, uh, get the resources in place to do that, what does that mean for the program? Can we do it? Yes, we can. But does it help our firefighters and mm-hmm. does it help our communities? And that's the measure of everything we do in aerial firefighting. The person on the rake, you know what one of those are? I've Saw oh, one I've used once. one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, and the host. That's who we're there to support uh, and we work for the people on the ground and ultimately to protect the community. So how do we go about this? Never been done before. So there was nowhere to point to. Mm. So we needed to work through that. The challenge – so there's the regulatory challenge, okay, and we, we've achieved that now and we'll talk about what we're doing going forward mm. soon. The other challenges then are a cultural opinion within industry. So there's some pilots who have no desire to fly at night at all. Mm. Uh, they think it's inherently dangerous. Uh, so so that's one view. There are others that um, go, you know what, I've done this in the military, mm. I've done this in law enforcement, I've done this in, in HEMS, in the, in the medical world. It's not such a big deal. We just need to understand the systems of work. And I put it this way. Um, it's all about risk assessment. It's about what you know. Mm. I am terrified of electricity. Mm. Can't see it, but I know it'll kill me. Yep. And so I won't play with it. Mm. But if you're an electrician, you'll come in and you'll unplug a live PowerPoint, whatever your rules are, and you'll do that. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so from a night firebombing point of view, it, it comes the same. But where do you get night firebombing pilots from? The only people that do it are LA County. Right. So there's this challenge around how do you get people that have – there's lots that have got night vision goggle time. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of people who've got fire, daytime firefighting time, but there's not lots that have got both. Okay. So it's about a crawl, walk, run yeah. approach to this. So then add to that uh, the challenges in uh, our our own agencies. 
So how do you fund it? How do you resource it? Those sorts of things, and we will talk about that. But but from a, a conceptual point of view, they're going, well, we've got some work to do in the daytime firefighting for aerial firefighting. Why are we even – is it a step too far? Yeah. Uh, my answer to that is um, – no, it's not a step too far. We Yes, we do have work to do. We, we've done some really good work in PDD, in harvest aircraft, in ash rosters, in making sure that we keep small fires small where we can. That doesn't stop us, even though we've got to improve some of that, doesn't stop us from doing other things. We've got to lift our eyes. We've got mm-hmm. to keep looking to what's next because if we don't, we'll remain inward looking, we'll remain um, stale, stagnant, and we won't progress. And w- we actually have a duty to progress. It's our job um, to see what we can do better to help our firefighters and help our communities. Because if you're not in it for that, and particularly I say this to all my pilots and anyone that works in the aviation space, if your fundamental job is not to protect firefighters, help them out and the community, go and fly people around Ayers Rock. Mm. Go and find something else to do. Because if you don't understand what our motivation is and you don't share the same motivation, albeit they've got pecuniary interest, business interest, have no issue with that, that's great. That's part of it. But they need to fundamentally want to protect the community. So when people say, you know what, we haven't got day stuff right. Why even bother with night? Uh, that's not a reason to not bother with night. Mm. So there are many, many challenges, and there's probably plenty that I haven't spoke about, um, but we will talk no doubt about what we're doing going forward, and I'll mm. talk about some of those challenges. But now, tick in the box, two companies approved mm. in Australia, ready to go, first time, and depending on who you ask, mm. depending on who you ask, so I'm not making this claim, I'm repeating some claim, yeah. uh, they say that what we've done is a world first in that we have snorkeled from water on night vision goggles at night, yeah. gone and dropped water on a live fire, albeit a control fire, but still live fire and gone and done it again. Mm. So what we've proven is repeatable. Uh, at the moment, it's safe, and I can't see why it's not safe in the future, uh, and that we've got a system of work in place that allows it to happen. So in anything, there'll be naysayers. In anything, people will retreat to what they know. That's their comfort zone. But we've got that duty to strive. We've got that duty to say what is next. And we've also got a duty, mate, to say why not. If someone says do something, we shouldn't say why would we do that. We mm. should say, well, why not? Yeah. Look at it and go, okay, all right, got to step one. We looked at it. Didn't get through the drafting gate, it's going that way. Or, yep, we let it to stage two, should we go to stage three? We've got a duty to actually do that. Otherwise, we're not innovating, we're not progressing, we're not advancing. And as we discussed off, off air before, how much innovation has occurred in the aviation space in the last 20 years, it's been huge, hasn't it? It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and I've been proud to be part of that from a CFA perspective and more broadly in the state and also nationally. But if you look at um, what... The team's done what everyone's done. 50 years ago, well, it's probably 51 now, but 50 years ago, aerial firefighting started with two Pawnees, I think it was, dropping in Benambra. Mm. Now, if you had a conversation 50 years ago with those people and said, fast forward to uh, 2018 and Victoria has 49 aircraft in their fleet, um, people would have said you were mad. You know, if you went back 20 years ago and you said we've got the fleet today, they said you were mad. Um, and if you look at our fleet that we've got now, it's the best fleet we've ever had. Arguably, it's one of the best fleets in the world. Uh, we've introduced in an innovation since predetermined dispatch. For those people that don't know what that is, um, if you go back to post Black Saturday and the Royal Commission, one of the things we had to look at was dispatch of aircraft. It was taking too long. If I remember rightly, the stats were uh, something like 32 minutes mm-hmm. from the time of call on the fire ground to get to the air desk just for the request. And then on top of that, 
That then took the ADS to ring the pilot and the pilot to launch and they had 15 minutes to get airborne and then they had however long it took from their base to get to the fire. And mm. if you think about that, that's unacceptable. Mm. So we introduced predetermined dispatch at Bendigo as a trial, which um, basically, well, it does, it sends pilots out on pages. So at the same time as our brigades get paged, uh, so do the pilots. And often what we're seeing now, fast forward to 2018, uh, PDD is at every location across the state except for the large air tankers and the air cranes, which are strategic assets. Mm-hmm. So every initial attack aircraft, fixed wing and rotary, PDD. What we've now seen is that 32-minute to call, on average, 8.4 minutes airborne across the fleet. So what we're seeing is a a phenomenal change in keeping small fires small. We're still going to miss some fires. There are going to be days of which we cannot catch them. But what we are seeing is that that dispatch time in support of ground crews with ground crews um, coming in behind you as soon as you can, we're keeping small fires small. Now, that's got huge impacts um, around uh, losses to communities, time for volunteers, time for staff. You know, it's it's making a a big difference. And then some indirect stuff. So the DMOs, the district mechanical Mm. officers, would say to you, you know, that first year in Bendigo, uh, anecdotally, we did less maintenance on the trucks because they weren't spending the time in the rocky country that they might have before because you caught those fires. If they just went outside the box, I wouldn't have considered. So there you You know what I mean? So some of this stuff that we never think about when we initially set up stuff, you go, my goodness, I didn't see that coming, but what a great indirect benefit. Mm. So that's one, PDD. Uh, Then you look at another one in terms of innovation and supporting communities, and one of the ones that I'm really proud of being um, involved with, which was generated from uh, um, the need and identified by the regions, but uh, putting aircraft into the harvest areas when harvest is on. So obviously the northwest and the northern country of our state and where the cropping areas are. Now, the figures, I'm not sure what the current ones are, but when I did it a number of years ago, something like 22% of Australia's cereal crops are in the Mallee, northern part of the state. And that equated to about a billion dollars worth of GDP. So there's some figures for you. The ignition is harvesting. So it's from a static build-up or it's from a comb hitting a rock. It's from a tyre or a bearing blowing up or a build-up of dust, whatever it may be. It's from a tractor. It's from a grain bin. So, And the people that get on our trucks when fires start are the people that are our core volunteers that are harvesting. Mm. How do we support them better? So we put a helicopter into Sea Lake. Uh, that now is the norm. It moves from Sea Lake to Bort with the risk and it moves as the harvest comes south, typically from the northern part of our state. Fantastic. So proud of that. And, and the team that put that together uh, is, is brilliant. Then in recent years, uh, we put a paper up, um, which I led, that talked about uh, from the aviation space, let's put some fixed wings into Oyun and Neil and do the same thing so we've got better coverage. So that's now, again, a successful program. And what we're looking at now is a gypsy-type model of plug-and-play. So uh, where typically we would stay at a base and you had to have our people there loading it, and loading the aircraft, filling it with water and all that, we now go, we've got two aircraft with a pilot in each and one person from that company providing the fuel and water solution. Now, if we get into a campaign or prolonged incident, then, yes, we bring our people in. But for initial attack, um, we can just go at it and they can keep doing it. Now, but if Oyun's harvest is over or it's raining in the Mallee and we want to move to Kerrang, up you get and move to Kerrang. Mm. All we need is a water supply, fuels on the truck, pumps on the truck. So this movable model about moving where risk is uh, is another innovation that mm. we've done. So, And then there's a whole range of other things. Have a look at the airborne information gathering helicopter. So... 
uh, Nigel Buchanan and myself, and Nigel, I, I love Nigel, great geek, nerdy guy, and he's got he's got a ten pound brain, you know, <laughs> and. Um, and I'm just I'm just a practical firefighter. He's got you put us together and we're going, how do we get better intel from fires to people or better information to turn into intel? We've got air observers that do that now, but how do we use technology better? So we were flying around with a PFIT kit, those portable field kits in the back of a helicopter, and I'm up the front going, Nige, film that, take a photo of that, map that, send it in. Fast forward. Last couple of years, we've now got Firebird 300, or what's known as the AIG, Airborne Information Gathering. Everyone knows about it. It's a red helicopter with the EMV striped down it. Comes over your fire, it maps it for you. It sends that straight into whatever mapping you want. You can get imaging out of it. You can get live stream out of it. Now, it's got work to do. It needs to evolve with technology, get better streaming. It needs better technology in it. But there's another innovation that helps our communities. It, it informs where's the fire, how big it is. Rapid impact assessment, something we didn't really think about when we put it together. Um so I've got some ideas about where that goes. The helicopter should in the Melbourne Basin continue to cover that, and then we need to look at fixed-wing options east and west. These are aspirational things that yeah. are my ideas, not yeah. the agencies. Yeah, sure. But we've got, as I say, we've got to keep lifting our eyes. So yeah. you just think about some of those initiatives. Then look at even changing the procedures that allow for air attack to happen uh, sorry, for firebombing to happen without an air attack in mm. place mm. so that the pilot can talk directly to the incident controller that turns up. So the local def, you know, DGO or lieutenant turns up to the job, they just talk directly to each other. Great. You don't have to wait for another helicopter aeroplane to come in and manage it. You know, those things I think have morphed when you talk about the last 20 years. I think the last eight to 10 years have probably seen one of the most fundamental changes in the fleet, in how we go about our business, led by our chiefs and our commissioner, um, supported by a great team of, of people that are forward thinking and driven by the need to help regions, districts, brigades, groups, etc. Uh, both in CFA but also the FFM, you know, the fire, uh, forest fire management space. Um, so that's only the start. We're only scratching the surface. Where do we go next? What do we do? Large air tankers, okay? Uh, Ten years ago, no large air tankers in Australia. I think we're now fourth or fifth season. Geez, I lose, you know, yep. lose this time. Uh, brought the Herc and the RJ in into Avalon, and we implemented that with a great team of people that was multi-agency. And our approach to that was that's just a single engineer tanker on steroids. Yeah, it might be big, it might carry more, but treat it the same as the other aircraft. And we've seen that used successfully. There are some challenges around the use of those aircraft, but again, the evolution of what's happened. What that does is because Victoria then and Australia um, wide gets looked at and seen internationally as people that are forward thinking, that are interested in innovation, and that generates interest. People are knocking on your door. Where are we going next with drones? ARPAS, remote mm -hmm. pilot aircraft systems. What's next with that? They're here and now. Do you want a quadcopter? The Defence Force announced yesterday $7 billion for Tridents, which I think are the size of a 182 Cessna, you know. Uh, it just <laughs> depends. Where do you go? Yeah. But- Everyone's got the solution for us, but what they need to ask is what actually is your – what's your risk, what's your problem you're trying to address, and ask us what you actually want yeah. to address that. So innovation technology is a space in aviation, and like it is anywhere, that's exciting. Mm. Uh, where does it take us? And that's where it's led to with night vision, goggle, and firebombing at night. So, so coming back to the firebombing at night, what were some of the objectives of the project? Mm. So the initial objective was pure and simple, gain regulatory approval. Mm. Uh, 
It sounds simple, yes, uh, but boy, you got a lot of balls in the air and a lot of moving parts to that. And and an absolute credit to John Ginnivan, um, who are partner with in this. Um, his um, their senior, uh, former senior uh, Delp uh, person, executive, very smart man, um, very good at. Um, systems, processes, bureaucracies, understanding stuff. I'm an outcome-driven, focused sort of, you know, firefighter. So the pair of us, yin and yang, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I thought it worked well. So that was the that was the the outcome that we wanted to do. Sounds easy. I mean, we had uh, volunteers from the Ballarat Group. Uh, we had forest fire management people from Delp. We had the City of Ballarat. We had um, National Aerial Firefighting Centre. Um, you know, Emergency Management Victoria. You name it. All partners in this to make this work. It was a huge, huge. Uh, achievement just to get the regulatory approval, let alone the investment and the time put in by the companies themselves. This is not cheap. As soon as you start talking aviation, you put a couple of zeros at the end of things. So, um, you know, Kestrel, a local uh, Australian company at Mangalore, they provide uh, the bulk of our medium helicopters currently. They have a partnership um, with Ericsson with the Air Crane, so a well-established, knowledgeable um, organisation. And Colson Air Crane from the US and Canada, based in Canada, but they have companies in, um, in those US and Canada and also Australia. Mature, um, respected, good gear, and they get it. So to partner with all them and make all this happen uh, with all the moving parts. And the key partner was CASA. And the way we worked with them was fantastic. We had our challenges, there's no doubt about that, but we got the outcome that we wanted. And I think the more that you challenged, um, not unreasonably, but the more you challenged and asked questions around how you want to achieve things, why you do it this way, and you need to understand why you can deliver that and explain it, means the outcome's right. So you were the authorised officer under the regulations. So CASA appointed you as the authorised officer, which I believe is the first time someone in the fire agencies has ever been ever fulfilled that role. How much of that regulatory burden then was on your shoulders during the trial? It, because this was new, um, there needed to be a way in which uh, the, um, if you like, the way you you experimented with um, getting to the outcome was able to be done within the legislation. And I'm not across the total detail of that within the CASA Act, but bottom line was uh, there's a section in the Act, which I think is 27AD, that they look at it and go, well, there is an option to do this, but to do that you need what's called an authorised officer. Typically that authorised person or officer is a CASA person. So um, they look at all sorts of things around flight planning, safety, loading, pilot hours, where you're doing it, how you're doing it. You know, it's everything under the sun. So the companies needed to, so Kester and Colson needed to nominate an authorised officer, uh, and it made sense because it was in a firefighting space that we knew about, but CASA don't know about. They know aviation, but they don't know fire aviation. Let's get someone from the agency. So I got pointed at and nominated, and I do believe it was the first time and is the first time that someone from a fire or emergency agency has been an authorised officer in this sense. So my responsibility my, went from being, I'm really serious about this, to being unbelievably serious about how we make this happen because the responsibility and onus back on on me but as a representative of the state of Victoria was enormous to make sure this worked right. And you know what? It actually helped because um, as much as we were already at a level that we thought was serious, it ratcheted me up another couple of levels that I didn't think that I had because it you almost become over uh, are concerned to make sure everything's right. And you know what? On reflection, it was a good thing. 
uh, not to dwell on the negative, but LA County had an incident uh, way back when with the US Forest Service and um, ended in uh, a disaster with some helicopters and that shut their program down for 20 odd years. And so people learn from that. And then you look at what went on with uh, military with the Blackhawks um, and we lost some great military mm. people in that accident. And that all informs people's knowledge going forward. And some of those people are in CASA as well. So um, understandably, they go, well, hang on, this is our experience previously. So by putting that onus back on me and the agencies really was a shared responsibility then. And that resulted in me having to do a whole range of things that typically I was going to do anyway in the terms of the organisation, the briefing, the resourcing, the fueling, the locations, what are we going to achieve, what's the script of actually CASA are going to approve, uh, and then uh, ultimately write a report as an, an authorised officer. And, of course, uh, at any time, shut it down. Mm. So um, and... You know, you imagine a lot of time, money invested, there's a lot of pressure to go make this happen. Uh, so the responsibility, which was on me previously, but more so as an authorised officer, to go, if at any stage there's a misstep, uh, this has been shut down because we're not at a point where we actually are saving lives. We're mm. at a point where we're looking for regulatory approval. And if it means it puts us off for a week, so be it. Um, you know, there's always a lot of pressure around timeframes, windows of opportunity and those sorts of things. As it turned out, uh, the team we had, phenomenal. Um, from the agencies on the ground, from the people in the air, from the companies with CASA, with NAFSI, and we achieved it. But the authorised officer thing is something that I, I could put on my resume. I'm not sure many <laughs> other people can. Yeah. Uh, but have a look at it. If, if people are interested, do a search for CASA, authorised officer, authorised person. It comes with mm. some responsibilities that CASA then dictate uh, what those responsibilities are. And I can tell you, they were, they were pages of things mm. that I needed to um, uh Satisfy to make sure that we got there. So yeah, quite a quite an interesting journey. Yeah. So now having completed the trial, what have you got approval to do now? And in what type of aircraft have we got approval to go nighttime fire bombing? Yeah. So the approval is for the companies. So Kestrel and Colson oh. have approval, uh, and that'll go on the air operator certificate to go night fire bombing. And um, I believe, and I'd stand corrected, but that approval is if they're working for a fire agency. So that's the mesh that part and partners is sort of dovetails us together. So what we've got approval for is to go fire bombing at night mm. uh, with those companies and um, in. In both the medium helicopters and the heavy helicopters? Yeah, so the aircraft types are. So Colson's um, system of work and what they've got approval for CASA is there's an S-76 helicopter which sits above as um, almost a traditional air attack role. Uh, it has uh, a infrared camera um, underneath a, a gimbal under the nose with uh, mapping software and live feed and that sort of stuff. So an air attack sits up the front next to the pilot, camera operator in the back. Their job's to fly where the fire is, cleanse it for mm. uh, hazards, uh, and I'll get to how we're going to do that in the daytime moving tonight. But the 76 and the S61, which is a Type 1 helicopter, about 4,000 litres um, with a Fireboss tank on it. So typically for Victorians, that's the machine that's at Colac or Mansfield, that type of aircraft. That's Colson's uh, approval. Both those aircraft currently are coupled together, so you need both of them in the one space when you're firebombing at night. You move to Kestrel, the Bell 412, which um, will probably be what is Halitac 346 currently at Mangalore, and I'm talking specifics now for Victorians, but um, it has got approval to go firebombing. It doesn't need an air attack, so that's their CASA uh-huh. approvals. You then bring that into the our space, and what do we do? So we won't be firebombing without an air attack overhead, even though you can do it in the daytime, just for how important this is to make this in a crawl-walk-run sense. We will over... 
um, prescribe what is required from a safety point of view. So we'll have an air attack ship overhead, whether that's the S-76 or one of our other fleet that we can currently do it with, and we're using the medium and the heavy helicopter to go and do that. This is about a system of work going forward. The question around um, effectiveness and efficiency, so those turnarounds, how much water is delivered on the fire of a medium versus a, a heavy, uh, I think will become fairly evident, but it's about that system of work and where we move to and what does the fleet look like in the future. First, we've got to get this to happen. So that moves us to this summer. Uh, we've got a time frame in front of us that looks at in the off-season, so uh, winter through to spring, doing some training with our people, training some additional people, and we're only talking four to six. But because it is so important to get it right, because if you look at the LA model, you could shut it down for 20 years or forever, mm-hmm. we are going to have uh, a proposal to the Chiefs that says here's a very small team um, of, of people that will run this. So you're not just dragging people in and out ad hoc. We'll do that to implement it in the first year. So if we turn up, you're the instant controller, uh, the system of work will be such that you've got a fire gun, our crews uh, will fly that in the daylight to make sure that they understand the hazards, the water supplies, the layout of the fire. We'll put a virtual fence around it, if you like, that mm-hmm. says a kilometre past that is probably where it might spread to. That's our area of operations. So A, our pilots have flown it and cleansed it uh, during the day. They understand it. Then they flick to the goggles and they go to night operations. So they've already flown in that space. So it won't be initial attack in the first season. So some people think it's 24-hour coverage. So if you get a fire start, take the Southwest fires, the peat mm. fires and that that started, Garvok, those areas down there, Penzurst, all those areas, uh, started it after dark, ran hard in trying conditions, we couldn't have fought those fires if we had approvals because it's initial attack at night. We need to have a fire starting. This is a self-imposed agency thing in the crawl walk run. Once we embed that, understand our procedures and we get it happening, um, we will then move to that initial attack, we think, but that's subject to boss's approval. Mm. So we turn up with a plug-and-play package. So if you're the incident controller, the last thing you want is for me to turn up and go, you are now got to find a night air attack. You've got to find a night aircraft toss. You've got to find a night air base manager and flight follower. That's why we want a small crew of mm-hmm. people um, that we can roster, out, but for the summer we'll implement that. So we'll we'll go to the fire in the afternoon, we'll fight it in the afternoon, and then we'll flick over the goggles and do a few hours. The other thing is when I talk about a few hours, uh, all of the operatives say to us four hours is about when you start to get fatigued on goggles, right? So um, if you think about if you, you've got kids or you do it yourself, you look at an iPad for about four hours at night and you try and go to bed, you're buzzed out. It's a similar uh, type feeling on goggles. And I haven't got a lot of time on them, but I've had some experience. But the experienced people tell us that. So we're self-imposing a four-hour at the moment, give or take, to make sure, again, that we're going about this the right way. It then might turn out that we go, oh, no, only two hours is all we can do. Or, no, we're okay. It just depends, again, on the workload, where you are, because then we also go to ground fill versus hover fill, and that'll be something we deal with as well. But all these things, the only way to find out is to do it. If we don't do it, we're never going to know. So we'll put a um, we'll put a project plan together. It'll go to the bosses soon, hopefully for approval, and we'll be out in the spring working on what we call control fires with the um, uh, control burn program, so that we can cut our teeth, understand that our procedures are right that we've built in the off season. We think the procedures for day will transfer to night, reasonably easy with some tweaks. We've got that matured enough that we can go. The other thing I'd say is a lot of people talk to me about risk of night firefighting. And they will say automatically that's a lot riskier than daytime firefighting. 
I don't subscribe to that, and and I'll you know I'll, my view will land where my view lands. But my current view is that um, put this scenario in play, and that is it's a different risk. It's not a higher risk. If I'm an air attack now, and I go to a fire at Ballarat, um, I might turn up to Mount Bolton, and it's going like stink. That's it. That's a technical fire term, yes. by the way. Yes, um, I know it well. <laughs> yep. Uh, then uh, I might have fifty trucks on the ground. Uh, I've got a uh, fire ground channel, I've got a control channel, you know, command channel. I've got a trunk radio, maybe a sat phone, and typically a Bluetooth um, through to my helmet. And that all could be going at the one time. So I've got 50 trucks on the ground, everyone's screaming, houses being threatened, people wanting support. I might have a dozen aircraft there, might have more, and multiple asses and larger tankers coming in, really dynamic situation, which we deal with, we're trained for, that's fine. Now you move to the night. Typically at night, um, hopefully the wa- the fire is quieter. So, you know, I mean, that's one of the things about night is that the temperatures drop, the RH should come up, the wind should drop. So that should mean fire behaviour drops and we should be able to have a better chance of trying to get it. <laughs> then you add we've got less crews typically on the ground at night. So we usually scale back at night for um, availability but also safety. And I'm only then dealing with an air attack platform and two aircraft not maybe 12 or more. So it's a different risk. So it's about having a look at the holistic risk now on the fire ground rather than just a specific risk of a, perhaps just the aircraft. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that's what I say to people when they say it's a higher risk. Mm. Um, and, of course, so uh, last night we had a forum that um, I uh, got a couple of pairs of night vision goggles to show people. And it was really helpful because most of them going, oh, wow, that's that's incredible because all people know about night vision goggles is what you see in the movie. So mm. someone comes into a room, throws a flashbang grenade, it flares out, they can't see anything, they're blinded. Well, goggles like the, the generation of goggles now with auto-gating and all sorts of things in them now, the technology is so incredible that, yeah, you still get some halo effects, you still get a little bit of blooming, but you don't end up blinded. Um, and our systems and training are such that we're not going to put ourselves in a situation that's going to do that anyway. So um, from what people knew in the movies of Hollywood to what happens now, uh, completely different. And if anyone ever gets a chance to have a look through a pair of next-gen goggles, they should because you've got the green and the white. I like the white. Others like the green. But it'll actually blow your mind about the vision out of them. Um, on that uh, on that uh, scholarship I did, I spent some time in Boise and I went out the back of the, back of the hills of Boise in the middle of nowhere, black as black. Couldn't see anything. So without the goggles on, look out the window, couldn't see anything. Drop the goggles down, put a very low light on, which um, the goggles intensify light. See everything, you know. And out there, he goes, have a look out there. And a couple of miles away, you know, the the Air Force or National Guard are doing night landings on goggles with no (laughs) lights on, you know. Um, And I'm not trying to be cavalier about it, but what I am saying is the technology's advanced more than anyone thinks Mm. or what they see in the movie. So if you get the chance to actually recalibrate and have a look through them, do it. Yeah. So where to next then for the nighttime fire bombing trial? What can people expect coming up? Mm, so uh, subject to the approval from the bosses and our procedures, um, we would hope that in November and subject to seasonal conditions and I'll arrange things, but let's talk about indicatives. So don't hold it to me. Yeah. Uh, what we hope to do is uh, in November do the um, some work on some control fire um, and, and, of course, when – when forest fire management or parks are burning or even CFA, they don't want us to put it out, so mm. that's going to be a challenge. But find somewhere where we can do that and um, make sure that uh, we've got those procedures ready to go so then December 1st, indicatively, we go operational. Prior to that, so between now and then, there's a lot of work to do on reviewing procedures, peer review. We're going to have a look at um, uh, having some workshops around the core group of people, but then more broadly. So... 
So our, our intent is to have that operational this summer, see what that does, and then uh, review that, evaluate it, and see. And you know what? It goes back to basic firefighting, plan, do, check, adjust. You remember what we do in minimum skills, plan, do, check, adjust, and that's what we'll do, continually assessing this uh, so that we do get it right. And then understand, more importantly, once we get our capability, we mature it, where is it best used? So uh, is there, uh, if there's a fire raging in the mountains in the northeast that will impact communities in days but not that night, uh, will there be a need to deploy because can you be effective with two aircraft that evening? Is it worth actually risk versus reward? Mm. And we've got to look at that in anything. We've got to look at that in daytime aerial firefighting. But um, state strategic control priorities around saving life and critical infrastructure and those sorts of things will inform uh, where we use it. Wayne Rigg, thank you very much for your time today on the Emergency Management Podcast. I appreciate you giving up your time to come and speak to us. It's a pleasure, mate. I appreciate the time. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for listening to the show this week. For more information on this topic, go to emergencymanagementpodcast.com. I'm Stuart Walker, and you've been listening to the Emergency Management Podcast. Bye for now.